Welcome to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity in cinema one reel at a time by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated films. My name is Courtney Small. And I'm Andrew Hathaway. Our show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you're hearing us. Uh, if you like what you hear and you happen to have an iTunes account, we would highly recommend you take a moment to go in, rate, and review our show. All feedback is good feedback, and plus it helps us to bring our discussion on diversity to a wider audience. Also, if you want to support the show directly, you can do so two ways. The first is by contributing to Andrew's Patreon page on his site, can'tstopthemovies.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help with the production work that Andrew puts towards the show. And you can also provide heat for his wife and cats because, you know, that's also very important as well. Yeah, uh, oddly enough, we're in Georgia and it's been freaking freezing. So, uh, yeah, money for heat. Electricity to say nothing to actually record, but heat also helps keep us alive. Exactly. Heat's the most important. Then we'll follow with electricity, and then we'll follow with, like, the, the podcast. Food. <laughs> oh, then the podcast, yes. Food can come after the podcast. There's, there's priorities, <laughs> Andrew. There's priorities. Also, you can donate to the Modern Superior Patreon account, I think for as little as $2 a month, and Modern Superior is the network that hosts our show. Andrew, how you doing? Happy New Year to you. I think this is the, the first official show for 2018, first a year show. of... Uh, prosperity and happiness hopefully oh sweet yeah i mean my goal this year is to at least make minimum wage off of my writing for the long term so that i can just keep doing this but uh knowing that's the year of the prosperity now that actually helps me out greatly so off we go um, yeah i don't know if that's official just for the record but i'm feeling the way it should be look and at it this way you've already set up that podcast goes before food so i at least get to hold this year of prosperity thing to you yes exactly and i'm reading um a book by uh, Tanish Coates um, We Were Eight Years in Power Oh, Tanahasi, yeah Tanahasi, sorry No, um, you're good My brain's going haywire today One of the things that Tanahasi says early on is like he talks about his early struggles as a writer and how he just kind of kept at it and then it took off and blossomed so maybe this is your moment for it to to blossom yeah and honestly it just means that uh one of the things i realized i just got to be working harder got to be putting more stuff out there so uh that's basically my new year's resolution as tried as those things are is to just work hard make minimum wage off my writing and then go from there in addition to being the first show of 2018 i guess this will be the official marking of season two and also the first show that we've done in a very long time that is just the two of us. Yeah, that is true. Uh, we've had a lot of great guests, especially towards the end of 2017, and we're going to have a few more guests upcoming soon, but sometimes it's just great to just have a simple conversation. Well, I guess as simple as we're able to make these. In addition, I would just also like to give a special thank you to uh, Seth Gordon, both for appearing on our last episode of 2017 on at the Fast Runner, and also because uh, I unfortunately am not making the kind of money to continue paying him for his art. So his appearance was both kind of a fitting capstone to what we will call Season 1, and also the last time that we'll see his art, at least for the time being. So thank you greatly to Seth. Your art's been very lovely. It's helped give us a distinct look in a podcast field that is primarily dominated by a bunch of boring white dudes. Thankfully, he was on board with our mission of diversity and tuned in some great art in the meantime. So I just wanted to give that special thanks to him, and hopefully we'll be seeing his art again in the future. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, I mean, he, he did our main logo, which people will see, especially if you're downloading this from iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you may be listening to us from. And on top of that, you can go straight to his website, which we will promote in the show notes and still keep contributing to his art because he's doing a lot of great stuff. 
He is indeed. You, you're going to be able to uh, to order some stuff from him in the future. I'm very sure that he would be more than happy to take commission work as well. I don't want to speak too out of turn for him, but one of the things that we discussed, not on our last show, but just me and Seth personally, was about how working on this show gave him a lot of confidence doing digital art of people of different styles of filmography and such. So supporting Seth is another great way to go because he's done great work for us. Excellent. Now, we like to start off each episode by highlighting two short films that you can view for free online. Uh, we like to put the links to the shorts in our show notes. And also, if you happen to be listening to us on the go, a quick Google search will be able to find these short films that we are discussing. So, Andrew, what's the short film that you picked for us this week? I like the tone thing that we've got. We're actually going to be doing a month of hip-hop as far as our feature films are concerned. And all three of the films that we're going to be talking about today, my short, Courtney's short, and then the feature film, all have a very strong style and tone associated with them. So my pick is The Cat Piano. It's directed by Eddie White and Ari Gibson. It came out late 2009 from Australia. The studio in question being the People's Republic of Animation, which my burgeoning even further left leanings very much enjoys that as a production company title. It is a telling of kind of the old wives' tale, old myth of a cat piano, which is an instrument that uh, pierces cats' tails in order to get a very specific high-pitched sound. It's done in this deep color, stylized sense. Like, um, Courtney and I were joking around about Moonlight a bit <laughs> because we can actually see each other for once. Sorry, folks, you can't see us. But <laughs> my skin is looking very purple in this lighting. Either that means that a uh, great lighting or I need to go to a doctor. The Cat Piano is very striking in its color, mostly deep kind of romantic shades of purple and blue with this blinding white that comes in of heavenly cat sounds or in one case is this very relaxed sultanish figure. So if we were just going to sit here and describe the plot, you know, there's not much going on. It's the overall tone. You wouldn't expect something as torturous as the cat piano to be a bit sexy, but it is. Partly because Nick Cave, he of the amazingly gravelly singing voice, narrates the short, which is a poem that I believe Ari was the one who wrote. If Ari or Eddie feel like chiming in and correcting me. I think I'll chime in on that one. Uh, it was Eddie. Eddie it was White Eddie's Devil, poem? The, uh, the poem, yeah. Okay. Well, eggs on my face there, or I guess uh, the cat's screeching in my direction to fit the parlance of the short. Eddie's poem is narrated by Nick Cave, and the man, he can make anything sound more alluring just by talking about it. There's a great documentary uh, about him as well. I think it's like 40,000 days on Earth or 30,000 days on Earth, one or the other. But it just contributes to this overall dangerous but kind of sexy tone. And when you've got those deep purples and blues and just the jazz piano and the sounds going on, like you really get caught up in this alluring tone before things go to hell and the poet starts losing his mind and they 
get the revenge plot and such. So this used to be something of like a, a secret handshake that I would show in between Dungeons and Dragons sessions to people new to the table who haven't seen it. I love it. Obviously, I've been watching it again and again for years. How about yourself? This was my first time watching this short. I had actually never heard of it, and I actually loved it. The style was great, and I didn't realize it was Nick Cave narrating until the very end. I was trying to figure out who it was. At one point, I thought it might be uh, Jermaine Clement from formerly of Flight of the Concords, just because of it had that tone to it, like that kind of Australian tone. But it, it felt very much like an actor, or in this case, musician, trying to evoke uh, Vincent Price narrating The Raven. And it worked wonderfully here, so... I was just struck by the overall look and vibe of it. And then also the story, yeah, I guess there's really not much to the plot. It's rather straightforward, but there's something in the words, the poem itself, that is just so vibrant. It almost matches the images and the color palette you're seeing on screen and how you get the sense of that era where like, people would go to jazz bars and music was the life of communities. But there's that great line where he says something like to the effect of the icy hibernation was the once-thumping heart, and that's in reference to the city when it's lost its music, when a lot of its musicians have been kidnapped by this mysterious being who I believe is man, if you will, if we're going to talk about the literal cat-human definition, I guess, in relation to this film. But it was just such a magical film that's both beautiful and at times somber. And I don't know if I'm doing it justice in terms of my um, views and my explanation of how I felt, but it was just a really captivating film. See, somber, that, that's an interesting way of putting it. I, I would have gone more dangerous, maybe a, also a bit depressing at times, but why would you say somber? Because there's that part in the middle where they're starting to mount the plan to free the cats that have been uh, captured. And even the whole time, it felt like the void of music had affected them so greatly that even in their triumph, it was almost bittersweet. The fact that they had to endure this and like they had something that was was wonderful it was almost a bohemian paradise and it got taken away to build yourself back up to the point where you're going to reclaim what has been taken it's a, it's a lengthy process and i felt that in this film even though it's only like an eight minute short i get what you mean now too because there is something with the words that uh, nick cave narrates especially towards the end where the poet was kind of hoping to retain his anonymity even after he helped organize this uprising it is kind of somber in that he recognizes that he will leave a mark whether he really desired to or not, and how that leads him to some kind of peaceful place, but also just as an artist, like it, it's almost like this romantic version of himself is gone because of the humans that, well, the human that came in was able to smash this all up so you know this paradise could end what's to say that the paradise that he now has with this white heavenly crooner could as well it just also reminded me of a documentary that i i think i saw last year and they were at one point they were talking about the uprising of the black banks in the south and how there was a time in the segregation period in the united states where the black community and black banks in particular were thriving they were just kind of left to their own devices, and they created this great economic system. It was working wonderfully. But then some people, predominantly white, who were like sheriffs and just local people in the community, came and burned everything down, destroyed. And it set that whole community back generations. Oh, you know? the and, uh, Black Wall Street? Yes. That, it, yeah. Wow. And, uh, 
in many ways, I felt like watching how the jazz community gets taken away and then that whole civilization not only kind of bans any talk of music, but gets violent and kind of it's almost like it becomes the slums, if you will. It, it reminded me of that. And I think also that played into the somber notion, at least for parts of the film. No, that's a really great fit. If you remember the title of that, let me know, because... I've read about the destruction of the Black Wall Street a lot. It's something that I think about, and oddly enough, as many books as I've been reading recently on slavery and capitalism and the judicial and law enforcement suppression of black folks in the South and so on, I'm surprised that none of those have really touched on that directly. But yeah, that makes perfect sense, and yeah, that's a very good pairing. I guess, uh, before we segue into your short, one of my favorite turns of phrase in the cat piano, very early on, uh, it's the, uh, the hip cats, and they're like this, smoky hookahs and smoking hookahs. It's just the H, that lingering H that Nick Cave dangles tantalizingly at the end of those two words flowing together, even though, you know, we should have an R somewhere in there, it's just... Oh, so good. Yeah, the film is definitely dripping with style, both in its words and its great animation. Since we are talking about animation specifically and style, yours is a bit more of a blending of sorts. So why don't you talk a bit about your short? Yeah, my short is entitled Junko's Shamisen. It is a film that was directed by Saul Freeman and... Saul Friedman is a young filmmaker who has made a lot of short films in maybe the last five years or so, many of which have played at the Toronto International Film Festival. He had one just this past September called, if I remember correctly, An Imagined Conversation Between Kanye West and Stephen Hawking's. It's an animated film where Kanye West and Stephen Hawking's have these great philosophical conversations and it's just dripping with like pop culture goodness the entire time it'll have you laughing it goes very odd places but he's just one of those filmmakers that manages to mix style animation and then even tell compelling stories like there's a a film of his which i thought about bringing up in an earlier episode but then it didn't quite fit it's called bacon and god's wrath and it's all about this 90 year old jewish woman talking about her life and the conflicts and bacon serves as an important metaphor in the film so he's a fearless director just kind of goes for it and this i believe was either his first film or his second in terms of his short film works and the reason i picked this is because i thought it fit nicely with our feature film for two ways partly because of the asian influence it's essentially a samurai tale told from the point of view of a young girl who witnesses her grandfather being killed by the evil lord of the area who wants to get his taxes but also doesn't like to be called an idiot in public uh we're not going to talk about the current president and the allegories in in that regards oh, but no, he's a stable genius we're good there yes like like really um (laughs) but for this particular film you have that samurai asian influence but then there's also a cartoon comic strip feel to it and for me it works wonderfully i i I was fortunate enough to see this on the big screen I, i believe it was at the real asian film festival maybe five or six years ago and it just popped on the big screen. And I think even if you're watching it online, it still pops. I mean, it, it has some of the rough edges 
that you would expect from an early work for a director, but overall, it just really struck me with the style and the way how he mixes green screen work, animation where you literally see people with like black gloves on their hands holding the butterfly that's flapping. Like it's just a smorgasbord of styles thrown into this short, and for 10 minutes, it worked wonderfully for me. I had a, a much more mixed reaction to it, but it's really tough to place exactly where I either lost it or could have never really had it because there's a lot of this that I do really like, um, like how the little fox spirit is animated in an almost stop motion, well, almost stop motion, it looks to be stop motion <laughs> style, um, as it accompanies the young girl. She goes to seek revenge. And there was a lot of playful humor in it that worked extremely well for me. Like, especially how Junko sets up a doll that looks nothing like her at all. When we get that point of view shot from Grandpa, and it, everything is slightly blurry, but not to the point where he should have been so lost in himself that this balloon-faced thing in front of him is clearly not his granddaughter. And then also how uh, Lord Yamamura, when he catches on that either this man is completely insane or he really thinks that this is his granddaughter, decides to just chop up the doll and in this gleefully evil manner. So, like, it was just a lot of little stuff stuff like that that I really liked, but it didn't all completely come together for me. And now that you've actually brought up some of Saul Friedman's later films, I wonder if that is kind of the case of, of this just being like a first short, let's just get it out there and see what sticks, see what works for me. Because I really liked the stage setup in terms of how it looked. Like, I wasn't really sure what it being presented as a stage play added beyond uh, getting to see all the black-clad figures moving things in and out. At the same time, it is cool seeing all the black-clad figures moving things in and out, because one of the things that I did really dig about this was how the camera flowed forward to tell the story of what happened to the grandpa and then flowed back to what would be stage front to show what kind of the retribution was afterwards. So there's just so much technique in this that I really like. But now that I see more of the idea of some of Saul's other pictures, and by the way, that Stephen Hawking film that you said, I have to read this synopsis for our listeners. It's Stephen Hawking Knows the Future. Synopsis. Over a Chinese food picnic at the beach, Stephen Hawking and Kanye West discuss dance movies, Drake, and the art of divination. I like that kind of restlessness. So it's weird that I'm in this place where I love the creative elements that go into it, but because of those creative elements, it feels a little stiff to me. No, no, and I, I completely get that. For this film, just checking IMD real quick, this was his first film back in 2010, and I would say that of the other films of his... Style-wise, I think it's up there. Story-wise, it might be the weakest, but I think that there's so much creativity in this film. And like you said, he's probably working out different things to see if he can do it on film. Technique-wise and style-wise, I think this film is great. I, but I can I understand why you would have reservations for it. If I was to make reference to some of his other films, this was probably not the first one I would tell people you have to see. But I think it fits the tone of our discussion today. That I definitely get. The way that the faces are directly drawn on in order to emulate that kind of like comic book style, only in front of 
the camera, even though there is actual animation blended in as well. It, it's so many things where I can appreciate this this kind of impulse to just get it all out there. What kind of idea do I have to make it striking? And at the same time, like we've gone over ad nauseum, it just, it just didn't quite sit with me well. But this is creative and jarring and striking enough in its very specific tone. I know that you said that you've kind of avoided some of his other shorts in the past, but I'd be more than happy revisiting one of these. Well, I guess revisiting for you would be a first-time visit for me. Whenever or if ever we've got something that you feel would be appropriate to, I, I wouldn't mind digging back into Saul's work. Bacon and God's Wrath, I definitely would love to bring up on the show. And if Day 40, which is his retelling of Noah's Ark, if that ever pops up online, we'll definitely include it on the show. Because I think he's a wonderful filmmaker. And I will say that I noticed on IMDb, the latest one, they have it as uh, Stephen Hawkins Knows the Future as a title. But when I saw it at TIFF, it was an imagined conversation between Kanye West and Stephen Hawkins and Kanye West. And I think that longer, lengthier title better suits the wonderful insanity of what happens in that film. It's one of those things where the joke could be worn out, but because it just keeps going, you have to go with it. That's a much better title. All right, so we're going to take a moment to change reels, and then we'll be right back with our feature film of the day. Our feature film today is Jim Jarmusch's 1999 film Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. In the film, Forrest Whitaker plays Ghost Dog, a mafia hitman who follows the ancient code of the samurai. After executing 12 perfect jobs, Ghost Dog finds himself on the chopping block when the men who hired him deem him to be a loose end that needs to be cut. Andrew, if we can peel you away from your pigeon coop and your Rashomon readings, can you please tell the listeners why you chose this film today? I don't know if any telling I have of why I chose it is going to be reliable, given the Rashomon vibe directly referenced in Ghost Dog and now directly referenced by you. But hey, I'm human. I am fallible. Here is part of why. Ghost Dog is two firsts for me. Whenever I, when I first saw this back in 2002, we were able to get a copy of it for our rerun film series that we had at the theater that I worked at throughout college. There was something like immediately enticing about it to me. Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. It's just one of those titles that does sound like a lost Wu-Tang album. Fitting enough, director Jim Jarmusch, this was also one of my first movies of his, has worked with members of the Wu-Tang. I think that the only reason that he hasn't worked with everyone is ODB is dead. And I think he has worked with just about everyone else on one of his films. This came out in a time when I was really starting to get more into film. I guess seriously, however you want to put it. It's one of those films that's like grown in esteem for me and just in sheer appreciation as the years have gone by. Because I saw it and I was really affected by it. I really enjoyed watching it on screen. As time goes on, there's more to it just both about the character Ghost Dog because this was the first time I had seen Forrest Whitaker in a role as well, and what all is going on in the background, and becoming more sensitive to Jim Jarmusch's particular view of America. Jim Jarmusch is one of our ultimate romantics. I know that when we talk about our mission statement for changing reels, that it's overlooked or underappreciated. Jim Jarmusch definitely isn't overlooked. I do feel that Ghost Dog is deeply underappreciated, especially with so many people struggling economically the way they do now. 
there is a heavy vibe in Ghost Dog of these communities of different people all adhering to some strict code that's either killing themselves or keeping them from kind of rising up above their station in life. Whereas Ghost Dog, he seems to stand as an exception to all this. He lives a very simple, modest life, and he only does one thing in the film that I would say is maybe completely wrong and perhaps a bit rude. But there's a lot of decay in the background because it just takes place in some industrialized city where most of the industry has moved out. And one of the first shots we have is this long street level dolly shot of all the businesses that are just shuttered while everyone is just trying to go about their life. There is something really affecting to me about the way Ghost Dog adheres to his code. He is the full feature-length personification of Omar from The Wire saying, man got to have a code. And we get to see this lived out through Ghost Dog, and there's something like really spiritually fulfilling about it. Tying it into the fact that we're having a hip-hop month, it's about finding your identity or creating that textured space in the music, which is done by RZA, I believe. There are a lot of ZAs in Wu-Tang, so I wanted to make sure I got that one right. But the, yes, this one is RZA, who has a very lovely cameo. It's building up these myths of the street, from the street, which is pure and central to a lot of great hip-hop. Not the only factor of it that's great, but one that I feel really hits Ghost Dog square and that I can hear and feel listening and watching it. Yeah, it's interesting because um, the whole notion of building up the streets, for me, it was more the... Not necessarily the building up, but the changing of, of the streets, if you will, because there's an interesting juxtaposition in this film between the old world and the new and how Ghost Dog values the code of the samurai and is really influenced by ancient Asian culture. And he's essentially at war or finds himself at war with the mafia who you normally associate with tradition and code and this version of the mafia are a bunch of old guys who seem to have lost their code in almost every regards and it, it creates a lot of conflict some really pointed humor as well um, i remember seeing this film i think i was probably in university so i remember seeing this film in the theater and just being amazed because i think at that time i had only seen maybe two other jim jarmusch films one was dead man which i wasn't uh, a, a huge fan of and the other yeah, one was neither. um what was i think my first one i saw of his was net on earth was that the one with uh, roberto benini yeah the that's taxi? The, yeah the five vignettes in the taxi cab that one i really like yeah i enjoyed that as well so for me this kind of got me into jarmusch even further and i like that he takes the hip-hop vibe hip influence but also the asian influence but does it in a way that at least i found re respectful i didn't feel like it was just appropriation of culture for the art of being cool when you see jarmusch in interviews and you see some of his other films the man kind of oozes cool but not in a condescending way it's just to him it's natural whereas if you were to see i don't know ron howard or someone make this movie you'd be like some studio put this together by numbers whereas this one it, it feels authentic and it's a slow burn and i think that's what turns some people off from this film the action that happens doesn't happen at a john wick pace it's very methodical and the aspect of the cartoon and especially towards the end the film itself almost becomes somewhat of a living cartoon in one of the final moments and i think that rubs people 
the wrong way as well. And I, I want to know what you thought about the whole cartoon imagery and the fact that a lot of these hardened gangsters are all sitting there watching Betty Boop cartoons and classic cartoons from like the 50s and 60s. Well, it's got a lot to do with what you had said there. And I, I love it. How Jim Jarmusch utilizes culture without condescending to it because i i know that you used ron howard as kind of a tongue-in-cheek example and yeah i I could not imagine ron howard doing this even if he just fully immersed himself in the harlem renaissance for a decade but i would think that maybe a uh, kind of an art house version even though he's far from the art house these days is you could level those kind of charges against quentin tarantino easily depending on the film i might completely agree i love django unchained but at the same time it is a white dude who is able to appropriate this stuff and create this pulp western where someone like Dee Rees or Ryan Coogler, they kind of have to stay to their lane, so to speak. But Jim Jarmusch has never, ever really been condescending. And I think it is because he just has this bone deep appreciation for every aspect of America. And in order to really have that, you have to appreciate non-white cultures. There's a great example of this in Mystery Train, where you have the Asian visitors who are obsessed with Carl Perkins, not Elvis, but Carl Perkins. It's just that little attention to detail that he really gets. So when we're looking at the cartoons here, what I think about that is that the cartoons that we see are all from a period or era that capture caricature well, especially in the Betty Boop era, because that's where you had Minnie the Moocher being played, Cab Calloway showing up to dance his own way as a ghost or in live action segments as himself and so on. So with those cartoons is already part of Americana, essentially, like this building up of caricature as a larger-than-life self. And even the inclusion of something like Itchy and Scratchy, well, now The Simpsons is Americana. It's probably going to outlive me, which may be depressing to keep watching, but we'll see as it goes from there. So when we're watching these mobsters watching the cartoons, it makes me think of another key piece of Americana and how American mobsters ended up modeling themselves on the cinematic versions of themselves, which weren't exactly true. So we ended up getting this weird cycle of mobsters imitating themselves because of cinema, but that wasn't really right to begin with. But there is no beginning. It's all circle. And that's something that we get in Ghost Dog as well, that there is this very generational ebb and flow of different ideologies and cultures that come in. It's very lovingly touched on with Perlene, the character played by Camille Winbush. And I love the conversation between the ghost dog and Perlene when they first meet each other. Because there's this dog just staring at ghost dog and she offers the most basic advice. Why don't you just tell the dog to go away? Ghost dog says, go on. Off the dog goes. There's this dry affect to Jim Jarmusch's work that I can understand why people think it could be like coy or cloying or condescending or something like that. But it's again, it's this fine-tuned moments. Ghost Dog doesn't take a stereotypical approach for a hitman, gangster guy, and say, you know, get the fuck out of here or whatever. He just says, go on. Like, he's letting the action move through him like water. So the cartoonish aspects, they work really well in texture with the hip-hop music, which, again, is is kind of about building those larger-than-life myths and then the cartoons themselves, which were all about caricature, and then that's eventually reflected in the images. Like, I love... 
the shot of Ghost Dog's ridiculously huge gun against Louis's head. When <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that you would see like a little flag like with bang pop out of it. Taken all together, it is just this really rich tapestry of different pieces of Americana that end up playing out based on a myth of gangsters. Gangsters watching themselves emulating what they see, and since they watch cartoons, well, that's what we watch. It's interesting, because one of the things that struck me about the gangsters in this film is that they're they're horribly racist, but it's presented in a way that is humorous and also shows that they are essentially not that different from all the things they seem to be chastising so the best example of this is when louis sitting down and kind of explaining how he came across ghost dog and they started this business arrangement where he contacts ghost dog via pigeon they have problems with that just in itself but when they go wait a minute his name is ghost dog and then they start going yeah maybe it's like a rap thing you know how these rappers have all these crazy names and they start rifling off a few it's a wonderful moment of racism if you will but then they follow it by going all right let's get the guys together and then they start doing some of the stereotypical mob names like call big al and little whatever i can't remember the exact names i forgot to uh, write them down but it was just such a wonderful moment of them chastising the hip-hop culture for having these crazy names while these guys are sitting around giving each other all these crazy nicknames that make no sense yeah you're absolutely right the names are like little lou and handsome frank and Henry Silva has a respect for that, that the oldest gangster doesn't, and that the uh, when we talked actually about um, Jermuch, how he manages to avoid appropriation, when Ghost Dog kills uh, Sonny Valerio, Sonny is the one who seems to just appropriate it without really understanding it, because, you know, he's rapping along with Flava Flav and enjoying the bling-bling lifestyle, when he doesn't have the money to do that, so he's already borrowing from a culture without even really being able to replicate one of its most important aspects versus again henry silva's ray the first time you meet him the very first things he says are in relation to his daughter and he just says if he had you would be fucking dead and it's chilling absolutely chilling and then he goes through what he thinks are native american names and he gets to running elk And it's like, what the hell? So those people that are on the cusp of understanding something about another culture, but their own bias and racism ends up getting in the way and they end up replicating the worst aspects of themselves regardless. When you brought up, Louise, reminded me of something else that I wanted to touch on. It's the role of women in this film I find interesting because you have Louise and Berlin as the main female characters in this world of testosterone and arrogance, if you will. But for most of it, Louise, who's Ray's daughter, doesn't really say much. She sits there, she reads Rashomon, Ghost Dog doesn't kill her because that wasn't part of the assignment. He just takes her book, leaves, and then you kind of see her throughout just there. She's always kind of in the picture. You know that she's important, but she doesn't really have too much to do towards the end. Whereas Perlene is young and seems to be the only one within her community, partly due to her age, that doesn't really know who Ghost Dog is. So she presents a form of innocence in the film that 
you don't really get from any other character. And on top of that, she also promotes a thirst for knowledge because she carries a lunchbox that doesn't actually have any lunch in it. It's got books, everything from Frankenstein to Night Nurse. Uh, I forget what the third book was, but it was just interesting hearing her and Ghost Dog talk about literature. And he's like, oh, yeah, I read that book. Oh, this is really good. Oh, you should check this one out. And, you know, even gives her the Rashomon book to read afterwards. And the one thing I wish that there was more of Perlene in the film, and I also wish that Louise had more to do. I read late last year that a potential sequel was in the works. I don't know if that's actually going to come to fruition or not, but I would love if the sequel focused more on Perlene and Louise, almost like a Kill Bill type narrative, if you will, but in Jarmusch's own style. Because I, th- I think there's a lot of wealth to be mined in those characters that we just don't get in this film. That actually is something I was thinking about on how a sequel would be very well-timed because we've got, at least here in the States, I don't know if it's making your way soon, um, but there's this film called Proud Mary coming out where Taraji P. Henson plays a hit woman, and really, Taraji P. Henson, hit woman, leather, I'm sold. I'm going to go watch it. At the same time, mentally, I'm like, man, wouldn't it be awesome if this was the Ghost Dog sequel instead? I'll go and I'll watch Proud Mary, and I'm hoping that I'll really enjoy it. We'll see what happens. I'm with you there, to a point. One of the things that I like that Jarmusch does in a lot of his narratives is set up quiet ways of illustrating how toxic, overwhelming male symbols are. Even in his vampire film, Only Lovers Left Alive, you know, it's really important that the two main vampires, they're kind of gender ambiguous, and they've got this perfect romance that they're able to share with just about anyone until things go to hell when people get drunk on the power. But there's something about Bill Murray who has, for the longest time, I mean, he does a very good job playing these existentially wrought people, but he was the alpha male smartass. And when Jim Jarmusch got an opportunity to make a film with him and we ended up with Broken Flowers, it showed how that kind of alpha maleness makes him painfully lonely and completely isolated in this world. We do get that in Ghost Dog as well. I think it's in very quiet bits and if it doesn't work for folks I completely understand that but you have the gangsters all doing this overwhelming machismo thing with the nicknames and the joking with each other and the grandiose expressions and that as men in a dying society they are not made to do this anymore like I love when the gangsters are trying to go out and find ghost dog and they can't even get to the top of a building without being absolutely exhausted (laughs) So you've got this idea running through that this overwhelming machismo influence is slowly killing them from the inside. But what keeps remaining throughout each scene, the daughter, Louise, she's there, she survives, and she's the one who ultimately ends up taking control of the entire racket at the end, which speaks to Ghost Dog's own kind of quiet but present sexism. He doesn't do it with Perlene. He loves fostering knowledge with her, but the gangsters almost had kind of like a pure approach by saying, okay, I'm going to shoot a cop regardless of whether it's a man or a woman. But even then, that doubles back on itself onto this idea that a lot of men are fine with feminism because they always jump to violence. Oh, I get to finally punch a woman now. So it keeps circling back to this idea that the men dominating these positions are ultimately killing themselves. And it's going to be up to the women to step forward 
and create some kind of new future, which is why I really like your idea of, of like Perlene and Louise either butting heads or teaming up in a potential sequel, because I think that would work extremely well. And given our current cultural temperature, Jesus Christ, that could have a lot of potential. Yeah, that would be interesting. It's, it's funny, though, because I didn't take Ghost Dogs not killing Louise at the beginning as sexism. I took it more as he was given specific instructions for to take out handsome frank she happened to be in the room but as long as she's not handsome frank he was gonna do anything and the reason why i think it was just more him following the code is because there's that great moment where he's walking in his community and he sees a guy start to follow an elderly asian man into an alleyway he knows that there's going to be trouble and he doesn't just immediately pounce he stops and observes and then you see that the elderly man is actually quite spry and fights off the attacker ghost dog just nods and goes okay i don't i'm not needed here and keeps on roaming to the destination and think throughout this entire film and the fact that it takes him so long to deal with his handler louis because no matter what goes on louis saved his life so he's in debt to him as a handler his code and his honor says a lot they always say you can tell a lot about a man by his code that's why i didn't take his encounters with louise as sexism and maybe that's just my male ego being blind to that <laughs> fact and i don't know it, it, it could honestly be and I, i'll have to consider that again when i revisit it but i took it more in, in that case as it's just his code like i think if she was part of the deal at any point if he had got the mission that he had to take i don't think he would have hesitated i think even just the idea and us talking about this idea in general is part of why i feel that ghost dog is really underappreciated i think it is a much deeper film than most people are willing to give it credit for because i do think that louise is operating in the background and that ghost dog is so focused on the men that he doesn't realize she's still there able to plot because she's the one who finally orders him dead at the very end and finally gets it successful but ghost dog's code is something i really want to dive into because i have this somewhat obsession with how shallow spirituality was in the 90s it was what i refer to as it was kind of like a very me first there was city of angels the remake of wings of desire and it was like everyone has a personal guardian angel and you had all this new age spiritualism and so on and ghost dog dance in such stark contrast to all that because that's really about individual betterment, individual growth, imagining yourself as dead, what you can do for your community, what you can do for your leaders, and so on. That lends it this spiritual vibe that influences all of Ghost Dog's actions, and it gives him an intense dignity that I wouldn't really expect, but it's a Jarmusch film, like getting kind of unexpected dignity from places, is that's what he does. When we talk about his code, you know, it comes out in very humorous facets, like... I love when he does his assault at the end, and he's got his two guns raised like an action hero. And when the one gangster dies of a heart attack there on the floor, his arm just slowly lowers. Because <laughs> it's like, okay, he's only going to need the one gun now. And how when he assassinates people, he goes gut, heart, head, like a samurai would. It's this respect and co-appreciation of the streets, like his interactions with the different rappers that he comes across, that when you mix it in with Forrest Whitaker's beautiful narration work as he uh, narrates parts of the Hagakuri to the audience, 
it brings some kind of spiritual growth of a character in this situation that I think was really rare in the 90s, especially. That whole Me Too spirituality aspect ended up turning itself on its head and growing incredibly violent thanks to 9-11 and the fact that we had a very conservative Christian in the White House and primarily leadership at the time. But there's like this alternate universe I get to envision where spiritual growth was more of the ghost dog variety of like developing a strong personal code and imagining all the action and these words flowing through you and i gotta tell you as far as introductions are concerned this was the first film i'd said earlier that i watched forrest whitaker in he is so serene and peaceful no matter what he does like earlier when i said also that there's only one thing i would look at as bad or maybe kind of rude <laughs> and that's when he robs this couple who is in like a spangly blue dress and this nice large suit that he needs to borrow. That's maybe the only time I would say that he's really rude or bad. And then the only other time you see him really break this serenity is when all of his pigeons, he finds them dead. But Whitaker is just so like Keanu Reeves in this film. It's just all the action and the violence that just flows through him and he purifies it in a way. And when you combine that with kind of like the spiritual leanings of the story and how shallow it was in the 90s, it just creates this magnificent package that we really didn't get that often. I'm thinking back to the 90s, and especially in independent cinema, there was a tendency to throw violence in, especially towards the end, even if it wasn't needed. And the selfishness of films like City of Angels and countless others is valid. But I wonder that was valid more so in like the mainstream films. And I found that independent cinema was almost like the counter to that, where it leaned towards the violence almost too much. I'm trying to think of like good examples. Uh, obviously, the first one that pops in my head is like Clerks, where if you look at the alternate ending to Clerks, it's a really dark and violent ending that didn't really make any sense, but it just kind of like at the time, you, that's what you needed. Everything had to be Reservoir Dogs or Killing Zoe. And this film... I agree with you. There's a sereneness to it. The violence, especially towards the end, is downright comical, especially how Sonny's taken out. But the ways in which that this film takes all of that hate and angst and puts it through the ringer of culture and makes it something palatable and not just for show. I think that's what sticks out for me in this particular one. But I don't know. You've got me thinking about the 90s in terms of a spiritual aspect, like, I, that's something we're going to have to dive into a lot deeper because there's a lot own, to unpack. Yeah, maybe its own uh, thing, uh, maybe its own podcast in the future or series yes. of podcasts or something. You're yeah, talking... and I apologize for my for my rambling, but I just like my, my no, brain I... is just working that out. I'm starting to go through like a, a roster of films that came on the '90s, <laughs> going, "Yeah, it applies," but what about this? so? We have to definitely unpack that a little more in another show. The big thing I want to take away from that for our listeners is what you were saying about how there is, uh, you know, the strain of almost violence for violence sake in uh, a lot of independent cinema at the time because you ended up having like go. What I thought of was actually the Doom Generation, which. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's like one of the largest jumps in quality I think I've ever seen going from the Doom Generation to Mysterious Skin. Greg Araki really turned it around there. But 
But when I think of nihilistic violence for the sake of violence, I think of the Doom Generation, which does have, you know, the stylized violence and so on. And it's not that it's not stylized in Ghost Dog. It definitely is. But I like how it situates everything within his vision and framework of his code. Because you end up with what could be out of context, and maybe someone watching this for the first time would laugh. But when you have the shutter effect on his movements, and there are bits of him that seem to be moving ahead of himself, and also in the past, in the present, it's one of those things that could be funny, but it is such a perfect encapsulation of how Ghost Dog thinks. He doesn't take any action without thinking it through entirely, thinking of his present being and thinking of the consequences that he's had in the past. So yes, it's cartoonish when we watch him have that after-image effect as he's both training and then when he's taking out all these guards, but stylistically it's rooted in this philosophy of him being entirely present and considering very carefully his next action, but then also the drive that he needs to completely carry it out. That's something that was lacking lacking in a lot of the nihilistic violence of the independent cinema in the 90s. And then when you throw in how Ghost Dog is so spiritually influenced by that, yeah, this is this is a deep thing that we could maybe, maybe we'll have to find some way to revisit in the future. Really like that as an idea. And I also like how it's isolating but not too lonely that he practices this code so completely because he has that friendship with one of Jim Jarmusch's favorite actors who I really wish got a better movie from Jim Jarmusch but hey maybe if I go back and watch it again it'll be better but um, Isaac de Bancol, an Ivorian actor who is just effervescent in this despite the fact that Ghost Dog doesn't understand a word of what he says it goes to that idea that purity of action much like how the cartoonish style gets diluted to an almost spiritual presence that Debankol he sells ice cream but he's just so exuberant about it that it ends up transcending word definitions and language barriers and creates this intimate friendship with Ghost Dog over chess which is one of the universal languages once someone knows how to play chess it's just another aspect of it in that wonderful friendship that this code and this fellow feeling can transcend all of this and go beyond death essentially is what happens at the end when the the ice cream man comes to mourn ghost dog's passing he's like the unlikely heart of the film like you would expect it to be perlene kind of the the precocious kid who stirs for knowledge but it really is this friendship with a guy who he just can occasionally hang out on a rooftop with and eat ice cream. <laughs> no understanding of what he's saying, and they're essentially saying the exact same thing, but in, in different languages. And even though their scenes are played for laughs at times, there's still so much heart in the film. Like you walk away feeling like they are genuine friends. Like, and regardless of the fact that they don't really quite understand each other, they would have each other's back in the time of crisis which is something that you don't get in the world of Hansel Frank and all the other mafias who, you know, will hug you and say, oh, I'm so sorry, one minute, and then plot your death the next. One point I want to bring up just before we wrap up is the use of technology in this film. Now, back in 
1999, seeing Ghost Dog with a remote car starter, like this seemingly universal remote car starter, seemed so far-fetched at the time. The fact that he could just use this device to unlock a car that doesn't seem to have any type of keypad or what have you, and then hold it to the ignition and the car would magically start up on his own. It seemed ridiculous. Watching it now and seeing how tricked out cars are, it's like, ah, you know, it wasn't as far-fetched as I thought back then. And I will say, though, his remote cell phone slash walkie-talkie that manages to channel into the exact portion of apartments or houses that these people seem to be in, I still don't buy. But the use of technology for a man who seems to lead a very simple life was not as jarring this time around as it was when I first saw it in theaters. With respect to at least the cell phone portion, technology is at least caught up to that point. We have uh, Edward Snowden's revelations about the NSA, among other things, that show how tapping has gotten very micro-targeted. To the car remote aspect, that actually touches on one of the reasons that I I really want listeners to go out and watch Ghost Dog if you haven't already. Because I, I really feel that even in the positive reviews, it was thoroughly misunderstood. Roger Ebert gave it a good review. He gave it three stars, uh, which is usually, you know, of interest. And he spends a lot of the time just calling Ghost Dog crazy and insane. I don't like that at all. I think that what's weird, and I tapped into that when we were talking about our conversation about spirituality and and how that's going to be its own separate topic. But I think at that point with independent cinema and mainstream cinema, just the idea of someone actually living a strict moral code so spiritual in its elements that could give it the perception of it being like a crazy person or a holy fool or whatnot. Ghost Dog is so courteous and kind he lives a very isolated existence but he is very certain in his actions he is not a crazy person it's disheartening even looking at the positive reviews of this at the time and them dismissing this man who has this bone deep code because one of the things that i do love and this will actually tie into your note about the electric car worker is the little mixes that he takes on to each of his contracts. I like to think that he is leaving that as a I'm sorry for taking your car because he's so careful to get these cars out without damage. He's careful to drive them without damage and he leaves this music in for the next person much like he ends up leaving some of his philosophy in book for Perlene at the very end. So I really hope that everyone goes back to this or at least watches it with more of an open mind in terms of just accepting someone's philosophy for what it is. I do understand why critics like Ebert thought this was something of an aberration at the end of the 90s. At the same time, it's why it sticks with me so completely and why it's still my favorite Jarmusch, though I I admit Patterson's getting really close. Oh, that's great. It is, it is. And I like that we can talk about a movie that has such strong spiritual lines without it overwhelming and having these cartoonish influences without those overwhelming and it just being this fantastic drama through and through about one man following his heart and his code through to the bitter end. 
I don't know if I would say this is my favorite Jarmouche, although it's the one that I watched the most and one of the few of his that I actually have in my collection, which is odd because Patterson is fantastic, only lovers left alive. And then when I start to think back to his canon, like Jarmouche has done so many great films, like of the ones of his that I've seen, I think the only one I didn't like outside of Dead Men was what the limits of control. That was just a little too avant-garde leaning for my taste but as you mentioned in your introduction is he really is an underrated filmmaker he really should be a household name by now and he still isn't and partly just because of the type of films he makes but like his stuff is consistently good and consistently interesting and offering something slightly different than the norm and that's what people say they crave nowadays but then they still go and pay to see like jurassic world 15 i wish he was given a lot more respect than he gets in the world of cinema it's this weird thing because he has had this great career and this strong body of respected stuff but i think it is because his films have this serene spiritual quality to them at their best and that still makes people uncomfortable because you know independent cinema does have a strong nihilistic or atheistic streak and it's too weird for the mainstream stuff and he's not willing to condescend or blow up like a quentin tarantino does but from the very beginning he is tapped into such empathy for the little cracks in america he doesn't make myths that are always reassuring but they're fulfilling and they have nutrients in them that i don't really get elsewhere well you know what i think that's a perfect place to end especially when you're talking nutrients and spiritual health oh yeah andrew where can folks find you well, you can reach me on Twitter at Can't Stop Drew. Uh, I also monitor our Gmail account, which is changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. I also encourage you to please uh, check out my Patreon to help support the editing and production work of this podcast, as well as my writings on the video game writing and so forth. So there are a wealth of options. Of course, if you want to go to uh, can'tstopthemovies.com, which I guess is the big one as well. How about you, Courtney? For me, they can reach me on our, our show twitter account at changing reels on twitter and they can reach me on twitter personally at small mind thank you all for listening again we always appreciate you coming in partaking in our conversations about diversity in cinema and remember you can change the conversation on diversity one reel at a time this has been a presentation of the modern superior media network 